This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In celebration of PCOS Awareness Month, Martha McKittrick, a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator, shares her expertise on PCOS and how nutrition plays a role. Martha has had a special interest in PCOS since 2000 and can be considered one of the pioneers in the field. She has been published in peer-reviewed journals has lectured across the country, is on the health advisory board for the PCOS Challenge, and advocates for PCOS annually on Capitol Hill. And be sure to look out for her book coming out in 2021. You will see that Martha is passionate about helping women take charge of their PCOS with a healthy diet and lifestyle and does not believe in a one-size-fits-all plan. Please join me in welcoming Martha McKittrick. We are here to talk about PCOS, and you are quite the expert, and we're really at the forefront of the PCOS discussion. So tell us your background and how you got into PCOS. So I'm going to be showing my age here a lot. Um, I've been a registered dietitian for over 25 years, and I've had a strong clinical background. I worked in a major New York City hospital for many years. Uh, but I've always liked to have my fingers in a lot of different pots. So I've always had like my own practice for really 20 years. So I was working for WebMD. I was running a message board uh, again about 20 years ago. And um, a woman had, had kind of written in and said, you know, I'm having trouble losing weight. I'm having all these symptoms. I'm eating really healthy. I'm eating low fat. I'm exercising. I can't lose weight. And so I said to her, do you have any medical issues? And, um, she was like, yeah, I have PCOS. And so I'm always like really curious about stuff. So I researched it. And at the time, I was also working with a weight loss doctor in New York City, Dr. Louis Arone. He's pretty well known. And I asked him like, what's up with PCOS? And he said, the women tend to be insulin resistant and it can be more difficult to lose weight. So at that point, we were in the fat-free era, you know, and everything's like fat-free, fat-free. So I said to this woman, I'm like, let's try, you know, a little more protein, a little more fat and cut down the carbs. And she was actually able to lose weight and her symptoms got better for the first time in years. And then she introduced me to her physician was, he was a doctor at Mount Sinai, Dr. Futterwhite. And I kind of hooked up with him and I got really interested in this whole kind of condition and I started lecturing for the, uh, the PCOS Association, kind of like across the United States with a lot of doctors. And I just found it like a really interesting condition that just not much was known about. So that's kind of how I got into it. And ever since then, I've been specializing in it. So when you started out, if, if I'm not mistaken, you know, PCOS was viewed in somewhat of a different way. And some of the things that I believe you were starting to talk about, like the insulin resistance and whatnot more publicly seemed to be a bit controversial. And I think you were trying to publish some papers and had some difficulty about it. So tell us about that. Yeah. um, You know, at that point, it was really believed to be a reproductive condition um, versus a a metabolic condition. 
And because I was so interested in it, I wanted to publish a paper on PCOS with insulin resistance and nutrition. And I wrote it all up and I tried to approach a nutrition journal. I won't say the name. And, um, you know, I wrote the article and they denied it because they said PCOS is a reproductive condition. It's not a condition of insulin resistance. And they photocopied like an article from like a medical journal from like 1950 or something that said Stein Leventhal condition is what it used to be called. It's, It's a reproductive condition. And they said it has nothing to do with insulin resistance. So I showed this doctor who I was working with, Dr. Walter Futterwhite, and he was very published in the PCOS world. And he wrote a letter for me with all these references. And he was like, you know, you're wrong. It's highly has something to do with insulin resistance. So long story short, they let me publish the article. But it just goes to show this wasn't even that long ago. It was probably in the year like 2000 that it was believed to be a purely reproductive condition. Interesting. And what about today? So I guess maybe we start with what is PCOS? Because from what I've seen, even the criteria differ. There's a few different ones. And I believe there's another one where globally, there's a bunch of reproductive endocrinologists and others who got together to develop guidelines. But what's interesting is whenever I've been to recent conferences, even those guidelines aren't referenced. So there seems to be a, a series of guidelines. So maybe you can help educate the audience on what it is and maybe some of the disagreements clinicians may have so that if they're trying to get diagnosed and treated, they better understand that that challenge. Yeah, that's part of the whole thing. I mean, first of all, I think just the name is super confusing, polycystic ovary syndrome, right? So so just the name is confusing because when you hear the word ovary, you think mainly of the ovaries and, and that, it's, that it is a reproductive condition. But it's really, it's a metabolic condition and, and it's hormonal and it, it's reproductive. So it really encompasses the whole body since it's a hormonal condition, it encompasses everything. Even mental health, there are much higher rates of depression and anxiety with PCOS because think about it, hormones affect like every system in the body, you know, risk of heart disease, risk of diabetes. So, so I think number one, I think the name is super confusing. The diagnostic criteria has been kind of debated. And there, there are a couple kind of sets of di- diagnostic criteria. And again, that's part of the problem. Uh, the ones right now that mainly are being used, it's the Rotterdam criteria. And basically a woman has to meet two out of three of the following. So it would be irregular periods is number one. Number two would be high levels of androgens or clinical signs of it. So the clinical signs could be acne, excess hair growth, or hair loss. And then the last one would be polycystic appearing ovaries on ultrasound. So basically a woman has to meet two out of three of those. And if she does, she could meet the criteria for PCOS. Now, there are some other organizations which think it should be three out of three, not two out of three. So I mean, that's like partly where the confusion comes from. But I think the majority of health professionals at this point are using the Rotterdam criteria. Now, you've talked about insulin resistance. Would you say that that is the major root of it? Because I've heard like even um, Sarah Bryden in her book, The Period Repair Manual, she talks about a lot of causes where insulin resistance is just one of the yeah. many, like one could be getting off the pill and things like yeah. that. So yeah. um, can you talk maybe a little bit about the insulin resistance and, and how much it plays a role versus other things that could 
cause PCOS. And I've heard the post pill PCOS can be temporary because you hear women that don't get their yeah. after a while yeah. they get it back. Yeah. So can help clarify that confusion. And like, here's where, you know, again, it gets a little confusing. And if you go to a physician and you say, what type of PCOS do I have? Do I have post pill PCOS? They'll look at you like you have five heads, right? Because I think your average, your Western physician is not going to know about post pill PCOS. The thing is, like, we don't know what causes PCOS. That, that's the whole thing. And because it's a syndrome, it can be kind of hard to, di- to diagnose. Like, if you have high cholesterol, we know if your cholesterol is over 200 or 220, whatever, you have high cholesterol. If you have diabetes, if you're hemoglobin A, A1C is over 6.5, you have diabetes. With PCOS, things kind of change. And so we don't know what causes it. We believe there's a very strong genetic component to it. Then there are certain drivers of it. And it's even believed that something like endocrine disruptors could play a role in causing PCOS. And in trauma, actually, you know, they're finding some studies where young girls who've had trauma in their life have some kind of problem with the HPA axis, which could cause PCOS. um, So stress could be a possible driver of it. And then insulin resistance, they believe, is a very large driver of it. And I've read different statistics. I've read as high as 95% of all women with PCOS have some degree of insulin resistance. And this statistic I got from their most recent, I think the paper you were referencing, it was the International Guidelines. It came out in um, 2018. But they say up to 95% of all women can have insulin resistance. I've read other statistics that say 80%. Um, this particular paper also said up to 75% of lean women can have some degree of insulin resistance. So the degrees of insulin resistance will vary tremendously. Some women will have very, very mild insulin resistance, and other women will have a lot of insulin resistance. And we can talk about how do you know if you have it or not. We can get into that. But insulin resistance is a huge driver of PCOS. And then it's also believed that stress, um, that inflammation plays an important role. And they believe that many women with PCOS have a low-grade inflammation that can be causing symptoms of PCOS. So kind of the big ones I say really would be insulin resistance is probably the biggest one or the one that has the most effect. Inflammation can be a big one for some women. There's a smaller subset of women who might have stress as their driver. And this type is often called adrenal type of PCOS uh, or an adrenal driver. Because when you have a lot of stress in your life, you increase the hormone cortisol, uh, which is made in the adrenal glands, and that you can also increase production of DHEA, which um, gets converted to DHEAS. And if you have high levels of DHEAS, uh, which is the precursor to uh, testosterone, that could show you might have more uh, of an adrenal driver or a stress driver. So we have insulin resistance, we have inflammation, we have the stress component. And then, you know, obviously it's a hormone imbalance. You know, it's PCOS is a hormone imbalance. So, and abnormality in hormones is also kind of like a driver. So I think these are important because there is no one size fits all treatment to PCOS. I guess my kind of gripe with this whole, you know, types of PCOS, and I think it's awesome that we're trying to individualize treatment and help women take charge. But I think sometimes it gets put into too neat of a little box. Like you might take some of these quizzes on the internet. I can give you an example, actually. 
So I had a client who um, took spinning classes. Like she loved her spinning classes. Like she really looked forward to them. She took them three times a week. It made her feel energized. She put her in a good mood. She just felt great after taking them. And then she took a quiz online that turned out she had, quote, inflammatory type of PCOS. Um, And then the guidelines for her type of PCOS online were you should avoid any kind of really intense exercise, uh, including like high intensity interval training, and that spinning wasn't good for you. And for your type of PCOS, you need to be doing yoga and walking. So this woman got like really upset because that's what she loves spinning and she had no ill effects from it. I mean, it would be a different story if she took a spinning class and she came home and she said, you know, oh my God, that kicked my butt and she couldn't move for two days. Different story. She didn't have that. So she stopped her favorite kind of exercise and she got all kind of like demoralized and didn't even want to exercise anymore because she wasn't allowed to take a spinning class as per the internet. So I guess my kind of, my gripe, I guess is, yes, I think those guidelines are super helpful. Um, especially with the insulin resistance ones, but I think you have to listen to your own body. That's like my biggest message to women with PCOS is stop kind of falling prey to every single thing you read on the internet and listen to your body. You know, and I could get into the whole gluten and dairy thing and talk for hours on that subject, but that's a whole other thing because <laughs> you read online, oh, if you have PCOS, you can't have gluten and dairy. And these poor women, like, you know, they, they kind of stop having their plain Greek yogurt and they stop having their Ezekiel bread because they can't, they're not supposed to do that. And they get upset and they feel deprived and that's not a good thing. But some women might feel better cutting that stuff out. So they, here's where you got to listen to your body. Let's talk about the path of how someone gets to a registered dietitian and the role you play. So we women may not necessarily see our primary care doctor every year plus the OBGYN. As I've gotten older, I do see both, but when I was younger, I certainly did not. Not everyone remembers to see their OBGYN, but typically I would assume that's your first place of diagnosis, where I've heard there's a lot of difficulties even there in getting diagnosed. So can you tell us what you tend to see and what advice you would give to women who are starting on this path of just trying to figure out what's going on with them and some of the challenges they should be prepared with? Because the other thing too is, because on our website, we have a page on endometriosis, another on PCOS, another on thyroid conditions. And it's you know just really helping women understand the high-level pieces, and a lot of the symptoms even overlap. So yeah. we can't even say, if you have this, you definitely have this diagnosis. So just knowing like women are having these things happening, and they're trying to go to their clinician, and unfortunately, I hear more often than not, they're dismissed or thrown on birth yeah. control without looking at all the things that can happen. So yeah. tell us about that beginning of the journey and, and what they can do. Yeah, I mean, it actually takes the average woman a couple of years to get diagnosed with PCOS. And 50% of women who have PCOS are undiagnosed. So, so those are just a couple of statistics. I think the biggest thing you can do is be really proactive and do your research. And uh, like there's an organization, I'm on the health advisory board, it's called the PCOS Challenge. And they have some great information out there. They're really advocates for PCOS. And if you go to their website, they have like a whole list of, you know, questions and, you know, diagnostic criteria and symptoms and that. So I think it's get a notebook, you know, get a file, start writing stuff down, start doing research. I think if you go into your doctor's appointment armed with some research and armed with good questions and, you know, writing down your symptoms and, 
get reputable sites to get information from, I think they'll be more likely to work with you. And you also cannot be on the birth control pill to get tested for PCOS. And, and this, unfortunately, I see sometimes is a woman might be on the pill and she'll go in and she'll get her blood work done or she'll get a sonogram done. And the doctor will say, oh, your hormones are normal. You know, you have no cysts on your ovaries. Well, she's on the pill. She's not going to have abnormal hormones probably to be diagnosed for PCOS. So make sure if when you're getting checked for PCOS that you are not on the birth control pill. That and, and just make sure you're having all the tests done, that you're having the sonogram, the, uh, the ultrasound done of your ovaries, because you need, in order to be diagnosed, you need to have blood work done. You need to have the ultrasound done of your ovaries. And then your doctor needs to talk about your symptoms with you. I mean, if you have hirsutism, which is hair growth, you're probably getting it lasered or having electrolysis. And your doctor might look at you and not see anything and not think it's an issue, but you've got to tell the doctor, hey, these are all my symptoms. So I think going into the doctor's office, you need to be very organized because the doctor might only have 10 minutes for you, right? The way some of these doctors have to see patients and you've got to just get everything down. So you don't want to walk in and feel flustered. Um, just, I'd say, be organized and just try to take charge. Tell us about the pill and how being on it does not help with diagnosis. Because I, I do know that, for example, you could develop PCOS-like symptoms once you get off the pill. But what does the pill do so that people understand why it would create challenges in getting diagnosed? Well, I mean, the pill, it's a very personal issue. I mean, wh when I was young, I, I actually was on the pill for many years because I had irregular periods. And I mean, I don't have PCOS, but the doctor just said, hey, you have irregular periods, go on the pill. It never occurred to me to question, oh, should I really be on the pill? Like, I didn't know that. Right. Um, and I think for a lot of women with PCOS, the first line treatment for PCOS, let's just say you're diagnosed. And I'll get back to your question in a second. But let's just say you're diagnosed with PCOS and the, the, your doctor is probably going to hand you a prescription for the pill and you think that's your only choice, right? Because when you look at the, like the treatment steps in these, physicians go online at these, like for example, what you're talking about, the 2018 standards of care, like the first treatment option for PCOS is the birth control pill. That's just number one. And a physician is going to read that and they're going to think, this is what my patient needs. But you don't necessarily need to be on the pill. But if you choose to be on the pill, you need to understand there are some potential risks for it. In some cases, it can worsen insulin resistance. It can affect the gut microbiome, which by the way, I forgot, that's another kind of root cause of PCOS is alterations in the gut microbiome, which we can come back to. But you need, need to understand there are some potential health risks with being on the pill. There are some nutrient deficiencies that can occur. And uh, why would you want to go on the pill? Some women have very, very, very bad like hirsutism or very bad acne that it can be difficult to be controlled with diet and lifestyle. Now, some cases can be. Like, for example, let's just say you have acne. Um, by, by getting to the root cause of your PCOS, which maybe it's insulin resistance. So if you do everything you can from a diet and lifestyle standpoint, maybe do a trial of cutting out dairy because dairy is linked to acne and PCOS. There are studies behind that. So I'm on board with that. And maybe take certain supplements. Maybe you don't need to be in the pill. Maybe your skin's going to clear up and maybe your cycle will start to regulate. So you don't need to be on the pill because you have acne. Well, let's just say you've tried everything and you are absolutely miserable 
then maybe you do want to go on the pill to, for, for your acne, for example. Oftentimes, women can start to ovulate and get their periods on their own by doing diet and lifestyle. And that's really what I'm trying to help women do is just take control of it naturally. But, you know, keep it in mind, if it's okay if you have to take a medication. And I think that's one of the things about social media. Um, on one hand, I think it's fantastic that now women know they don't have to take medications, but some women want to or choose to or need to. And it's okay. Like if you take spironolactone, which is it's a diuretic, but it's, it's often used off-label for PCOS to help with uh, acne or to help with uh, hair growth, it maybe will really help you and it makes your let your quality of life better because you no longer have this hair growth or your skin's gotten better and that's okay. You know, so you shouldn't feel shamed in no matter what you do. But to get back to your first question, um, when you're on the pill, it will change your hormones. It does help to lower androgens. So that would affect your blood work. So if you're on the pill, chances are you might have a lower testosterone level Maybe some of your symptoms will get better. Um, sometimes acne improves. Uh, you're, you're, you may start to get a period, but it's not really a period because the pill suppresses ovulation. It's just a bleed, but everybody calls it a period. So you'll get like this kind of fake cycle. But, you know, some, for some women it works. For other women it also causes depression. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of side effects of the pill that is not really talked about. And if you go on the pill and you see a big change in your mood and depression and all that, you know, I think you should probably get off the pill. Those are really valid points. And I appreciate you reminding women not to be hard on themselves and it's their power to choose. Because that's what, you know, this is really all about. And, you know, unfortunately, there aren't enough answers for women and we all just do the, the best we can and we have to really help each other through that. So we talked about some of the side effects of having PCOS, but we haven't really covered what is really the impact of PCOS. So yes, you may have hair growth. Yes, you may have issues um, with weight loss um, and things like that. But what what else? Like you know, help help everybody understand the other impacts of it. So for example, like not ovulating and and just what that means. Right. So. It, it, you know, decreased uh, ovulation. Some women have trouble getting pregnant, although you should not feel that it's hopeless. I have tons of clients who've gotten pregnant with, on PCOS, with PCOS without on medication. So you can get pregnant. If you have trouble, you could be assisted with um, some kind of reproductive physician. But, you know, the health kind of complications, my concern is, well, I have a lot of concerns, but the metabolic concerns are, are probably even more serious. Like there is a greatly increased risk of type 2 diabetes. It's believed that 50% of women will get type 2 diabetes by the age of 40 because PCOS tends to be a metabolic condition for many women, not for all, because there are some women who have more, they don't have insulin resistance and they don't have as much, much inflammation they're kind of more, it's more of the reproductive issue. So they don't have as great a risk for, for diabetes, but a lot of women do. And there's also an increased risk of heart disease, increased risk of endometrial cancer. And then there's a huge impact on mood and anxiety disorders and all that. So you have your symptoms, which can be for some women devastating, like the hair loss, the hair growth, the acne, that can be horrible, trouble getting pregnant, but then there's the more metabolic problems as well. So there's a lot. And 
you know, the name polycystic ovary syndrome, you don't know that. When you hear that name, you just think of, oh, I have cysts on my ovaries. And first of all, these aren't cysts. They're teeny, teeny, teeny little, they call them a string of pearls, like little tiny white dots on your ovaries. It's not like you have this massive cyst. But that's what people think about. If you tell somebody, I have PCOS, you tell your friend, they'll be like, so you have cysts on your ovaries, so? Like, they don't understand. It's not that. It's a hormone condition that can affect my entire body, including my mood and all that. So it's, uh, it's amazing that more is not talked about it and known about it. We talked, you know, you're a registered dietitian. So let's talk about diet. And I'm sure you're involved in so many different aspects, but I know nutrition is such a key. And I know nutrition impacts, impacts mood and things like that. So a person is, is diagnosed and when do they come to you and what is the role someone like you can play in their life and how do you help? Well, usually women self-refer themselves because a lot of doctors <laughs> don't refer them. I, I actually, but we have to say that. I mean, we have to know these things, right? right? I contacted a great, I mean, I thought she was a great endocrinologist in New York City and I'm like, hey, you know, I specialize in PCOS. I'm here to see your patients. And she was like, what does nutrition have to do with PCOS? I'm like, oh, you know dear. I'm not even going to bother explaining. It's just, it's a hopeless <laughs> situation. She was just have them lose weight. Oh uh, no. Oh, that is actually I, a common quote. Lose yeah. weight, you'll be fine. I'm glad we just said that. I'm glad we just said that because, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners can attest to this, you know, you get diagnosed finally after years and maybe seeing four different physicians, you finally get those diagnosed with PCOS. You're so excited. So, okay, now what can I do to help myself? Eat less, exercise more, and lose weight. That's what you're told. Or, you know, if you hadn't gained weight, you probably wouldn't have this, that kind of thing. Or lose weight and then you can get pregnant. So it's all put on the weight. It's all, the woman's almost like blamed it's your fault because you, of your weight, which is not true. About 30% of women who have PCOS are lean and they're not overweight. So what are they going to do? Like, you know, it's not, it's the weight. Yes, it is true. You know, having excess weight on you can worsen insulin resistance. It can worsen inflammation, but even lean women have been found to have um, higher inflammatory markers and they have insulin resistance. So it's not just about weight. I think a woman has to be proactive and understand that nutrition and lifestyle should be the first line treatment for PCOS, not pills, because nutrition and lifestyle can attack insulin resistance, it can attack inflammation, and it can help improve gut health, and it can also help with hormone balance with like the adrenal uh, androgens kind of thing. So that's where you want to start. And I'm really big on nutrition and lifestyle. Yes, I am a registered dietitian, but to me, you know, something like getting enough sleep or stress management, avoiding endocrine disruptors, these things are just as important as eating a healthy kind of diet and, and being active. And I think a lot of women here read online, like I told you my story about the, the woman who took the spin classes, they're confused. Like they just don't know what kind of exercise should I be doing? It's just super confusing. Can I do high intensity? Should I just do low intensity? Should I weight train? Will I get too bulky? What should I do? So I help them with all that. I just kind of, I look at the woman as an individual and I try to help her understand, you know, her root cause or root causes of PCOS. And it could be a couple. A woman could have insulin resistance. She could have some inflammation and she could have some GI issues. She could have some gut health issues. So it could be, or she could also have stress issues. So it could be all four really. 
Um, so I think we have to not put women in like a little box, like this is what you do with this type and this type and this type. So you got to look at kind of the overall picture. And sometimes it'd be kind of tricky to figure out your root cause because, for example, with inflammation, yes, you can have your inflammatory markers checked, but chances are they're going to be normal. But that doesn't mean you don't have inflammation in your body. There are a lot of other signs of inflammation. You know, it could be a lot of fatigue. It could be feeling achy. There is a lot uh, that could indicate you have inflammation. So um, the same thing with insulin resistance. Like you could get your fasting insulin levels checked and it's totally normal. But that does not mean you don't have insulin resistance. There are other ways to judge. The best test would be a two-hour glucose tolerance test with insulin levels but a lot of doctors don't do that. Um, I often just judge by kind of signs and symptoms. Like, do you have a lot of trouble losing weight? Do you have excess fat stored around the abdominal area? Do you have skin tags? Do you have dark patches of skin? I might do a waist to hip uh, ratio. And if it's greater than 0.8, that's a sign of insulin resistance. If you have prediabetes, it's highly suggestive of insulin resistance. So there's a lot of other ways. Do you always crave carbohydrates? There are a lot of other signs to assess for insulin resistance. So, so um, yeah, so what, what I would highly recommend is if somebody gets diagnosed with PCOS to um, f- do some research on social media. There's some great dietitians to follow. Be, you want to find a dietitian who specializes in PCOS because not all dietitians know about it. Or, or that knowledge about it or supplements and all that. So you want to find a specialist and you want to be careful if somebody's saying to you, all women need to avoid this or all women need to do this who have PCOS, like run, because there is a no one size fits all approach for PCOS. You know, there's the root cause difference. There's, there's lifestyle, there's activity level, there's, um, there are, there's genetics, there's gut microbiome, there are so many things, there's food sensitivities so there's never a one-size-fits-all approach. So, you know, do some research, find somebody who specializes in it, and you need a plan tailored to you. You need to sit down with your coach, with your nutritionist. You need to talk about, you know, your, your concerns. You need to talk about your problem areas, what your food cravings, you know, your sleep, your exercise. You need to have a discussion for like an hour and just really talk about what's going on. And then you need to work with the dietitian to get a plan for you. And the plan should really encompass everything. It should encompass, I always talk about sleep with my clients. Sleep is like so important for PCOS. And you need to talk about stress and you need to figure out what kind of exercise is best for you. Like I'm a huge fan of yoga. They've done a lot of studies on yoga with PCOS. Like that's awesome. But don't be afraid to weight train. Like a lot of women don't weight train. So you need a plan tailored for you. And then you need to go through your lifestyle. Like some of my clients, especially in New York, like hate to cook. <laughs> they just don't want to cook, right? So, um, so then you need somebody who's going to help you. If you don't cook, what, what else can you do? How can you meal plan or how can you get healthy foods in? You don't want to be put on a plan that's not realistic. If you hate to cook and you're given a million recipes, it might work for a week, but it's not going to work anymore. You know, how are you going to handle your carbohydrate cravings? What can you do about it? Like a lot of these problems can be solved, but you need to work with somebody to get some help. So you, because, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people talking about certain diets like the keto diet and the eight hour um, eating window and things like that. So what I'm hearing you say is scrap all that, 
Um, it's really the, like, don't follow, oh, I did keto, therefore this is going to work for me. Like, what, do you, what would you say to the women who are, talking, who are talking about these boxes? I think you have to start with the basics, right? And, and we can, you know, with clients, like, I'm not a keto fan, but I'm open to it. I'm not a huge fan of strict intermittent fasting, but I'll talk about it. But you've got to start with the basics. Like the, what you don't want to do for PCOS is jump on keto because there are much higher rates of eating disorders, disordered eating and all that. Um, a lot of that because you, you put yourself on these restrictive plans. So what you don't want to do is jump, get diagnosed with PCOS. Your doctor says you got to go keto. So you jump on a keto plan that's not realistic and it has you eating all kinds of processed meat, you know, not enough plant foods. And it's not a super healthy diet to start with. And you, you can't sustain it. Most women cannot sustain keto. I mean, I don't know that it's that healthy. I could help you make it healthy, but the lifestyle, just the way of eating, like you can't even have an apple, right? So for most women, it doesn't work. If you love it and you're, it clicks with you, you're like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. My cravings have gone away. I feel so fantastic. Then you want to work with a nutritionist to make sure your keto diet is as healthy as possible because regular keto is not so healthy. But I tell people to start with the basics, start with a very anti-inflammatory diet, a diet that is, I kind of like to, to use the, the word, the piece was plate kind of visualization when planning meals. You want to make like half your plate vegetables, a quarter protein and a quarter high fiber, healthy carbohydrate, and then throw some fat in there like olive oil or avocado. That's kind of how you want your balance to kind of be like that. And then take it from there. So do that. And but, but then you could like fine tune it. Maybe you want to do a little like time restricted eating where you eat within like a 10 hour window or something like that. that. But that to me is like down the line. Like I start people with the basics. Let's get rid of all the sugary stuff. Let's get rid of the white carbs. Let's get rid of as many processed foods as we can. Let's get in more vegetables. Let's make sure we have protein in every meal. Let's make sure you're getting in a lot of fiber because fiber to me is so important for PCOS. So let's start there, and then, then we could tweak things. Then we can talk about, well, what should your exact portion size be of carbohydrates? You know, we can fine-tune if you have insulin resistance. Some women might do better having a little bit lower amounts of carbohydrates, but that we have to fine-tune. But I think start with the basics. Don't start with something restrictive because if you do, I can guarantee you won't be able to stick to it. So then after a couple of weeks, you fall off the plan, you get upset with yourself, you beat yourself up, I have no discipline, I can't do it, and then you get caught up in this cycle. Then you're looking for the next quick fix. You can't do it, you beat yourself up, and at that point, you just can't, you can't, you, you feel hopeless. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I even think of the different things I've tried, and uh, it is true when you're restrictive, after a while, like... You get on a high, right? Because it feels so good. And then after a while, it just becomes really, really hard. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that there's always options. So I think that's important for people to know. Uh, one thing I, I just didn't want to forget to ask is why is it that blood work doesn't always show insulin resistance or inflammation? Because with PCOS, there tends to be a low-grade inflammation that kind of sneaks under like the lab ranges, like for example, C-reactive protein is a common inflammatory marker that's drawn. And yours might be high, but chances are it might also be low, but it doesn't catch the very low grade inflammation that goes on uh, with PCOS. And with insulin, your insulin levels like vary all day long. Like I wish 
you know how they have a continuous glucose monitor that you can wear on your arm? Yep. And you run your phone over it and you can see what your glucose is. It's like so cool. I wore one. I don't have diabetes, but I took a course and I wore one of those for a while. It was like the coolest thing ever. You can see (laughs) immediately what their reaction was if you ate you know, a bagel or something, you see your sugar goes up to like 200 and you're like, Hey, I don't want to eat that anymore. It was so cool. But I wish they had that with insulin. Cause then you could see, Hey, you know, I ate this bowl of uh, cornflakes. Now my insulin went up to like 15 or something. We don't have that. And so insulin levels vary all day long and just getting the fasting insulin. Sure. It might show you high insulin. That probably means you're pretty insulin resistant, but I have other clients whose insulin showed up as totally normal but they have a lot of abdominal fat. They have trouble losing weight. They have tons of carbohydrate cravings. They have type two diabetes in the family. That's like almost a no brainer that somebody's insulin resistant. So I I like to to almost go by signs and symptoms more, unless you can get the two hour glucose tolerance test done with insulin levels. That's a little more accurate because that catches what your body does after a high glucose load. So people come to you for the the nutrition piece and I know you recommended, you know, any sort of registered dietitian that specializes in PCOS when coming to see you, what would you recommend? Cause it sounds like they need to, I, I would assume an alt- optimal appointment is that they can come to you with the right set of information. And I'm sure you do some sort of an intake form. So would you say a best practice is monitoring certain things before they come visit you? Or do you tend to want to have a discussion with them around the whole background of it so that they understand why and then you work with them after? Like what is the best practice? I prefer somebody to come to me with blood work. I would prefer to see, you know, even some of their vitamins, like their vitamin D levels, their vitamin B12 levels, other vitamin levels like zinc and magnesium aren't as accurate in the blood, but I'd like to see vitamin D, B12, I'd like to see fasting glucose. I'd like to see hemoglobin A1C, a full cholesterol profile, their thyroid profile, and then uh, a full hormone profile. And because I like to look at, you know, are the testosterone levels high? Even if they aren't high, but the woman is having a lot of symptoms of high testosterone, like the hair growth, the hair loss, the acne kind of thing, we can assume they have high androgens because they're having symptoms or it's being converted to the active form, the DHT. But, but I like to see the DHEAS, you know, I think that's super useful information too. You know, if they can get cortisol done appropriately, that's helpful. But I, I, I like them to come with blood work, but I don't need them to. I can, by interviewing them, I can also get a pretty good idea of kind of what's going on and we can start working on diet and lifestyle and, um, and then they get blood work at some point. So yeah, that's what I recommend. So you start with diet. And one thing I've been wondering about the diet piece is, you know, and again, there's probably not clinical trials that say this, but I'm just curious if you have a perspective on this is I've been learning so much about the impact of food. And, you know, as Amy Raup had said in a previous podcast interview, food is medicine. And it really is amazing when you're eating what's right for you, the dramatic changes it can make to your body. How does the psychological aspect of PCOS play a role? Like, is it, really driven by like, for example, someone just being so depressed because maybe they're gaining weight? Is it based on, you know, because their body's out of whack and their hormones are out of whack, it's, it's causing that? Like, where does it come from and, and how much of a role does diet play in helping these women? That's a, I mean, it's a really good question. 
so why do women with PCOS higher, have higher rates of like mood disorders? The statistics are um, there's a five, five times higher rate of anxiety and a 10 times higher rate of depression. And it's estimated at least 60% of women with PCOS have one mental health concern. And that's such an important point that they have put into the screening guidelines that women need to be screened for mental health issues. So yes, it is a concern. So very good question. Like why, why is there an increased incidence of mood disorders? Uh, there's a lot of potential reasons. I mean, of course, one of them is obvious, right? You're having all these symptoms. No one's listening to you. You feel like you're going crazy. That could certainly cause anxiety and depression. So that's obvious. They've done some studies where high levels of the DHEAS can lead to increased anxiety. And about 30% of women do have high DHEAS. Blood, dis, uh, blood sugar dysregulation can affect mood. If your blood sugar is going up and down all over the place, you have high levels of insulin. That can bring your sugar down really fast. That can affect your mood. There's also believed to be um, a link between insulin resistance and anxiety and depression. Now, we need more research, but there are some studies suggesting there's a link. So there's something going on there. So those are some of the, the major reasons why that, that there's, you know, there's the increased risk of it. So, and I think also, you know, like you had mentioned for some women who they're trying to lose weight and they just feel like they're always following some restrictive, you know, unrealistic plan. And that can make you feel really down and just have an effect on your self-esteem. And it's always restriction. Like you rarely hear someone say, Hey, eat more. If you have PCOS, eat more of this and eat more of this. It's always don't eat this, don't eat this. Like I just did a post today on Instagram about coffee. Like you read online, everyone's like, don't have coffee if you have PCOS or you can't have any alcohol. Well, you can. And if you have a cup of coffee and it drives you, if you feel super anxious and don't have it, but a little bit. So I think, I think it's just, it's, it's deprivation or restriction. And your doctor says you've got to do this and lose more weight. And and you're trying and you're trying and nothing's working. I mean, it's not a shocker. There are higher incidences of mood disorders, but there are also real physiological reasons why it could be happening. Okay. I want to give a shout out to one of my colleagues who I'm like a girl fan of hers. Uh, doctor, <laughs> you should interview her actually in a podcast, uh, Dr. Gretchen Kubaki. And she wrote a book called The PCOS Mood Cure, which is fantastic. And she is PCOS herself. And she talks all about like what's going on and what you can do. I love her approach because She's open to medications, but she's also very natural. And she gives you both kind of routes you could take and lots of practical tips and guidelines for how to talk to your doctor about it. In the world that you're working in and your focus, I mean, clearly you work with more of the diet aspect. When do you see medication and supplements playing a role? And what have you, I guess, just how would you like to talk about the, the medication piece? Well, I mean, supplements are my in my area. I mean, I most women I work with take some kind of supplement. You know, I always do food first, lifestyle first. I, I do all that. But um, there's been a lot of research done on a supplement called inositol, helping with insulin resistance. So that's something most of my clients will go on. Of course, if I don't think there's any insulin resistance, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I always check their vitamin D levels. There's also a strong association between insulin resistance fertility, inflammation, uh, and vitamin D. So they need to have their vitamin D in a good range. So oftentimes I recommend supplements there. Um, there's another supplement called NAC, which is an amino acid, an antioxidant. They've done a lot of studies with NAC and with fertility and decrease in insulin resistance and inflammation. 
So that's another common one. A lot of my clients will go on. Um, I might recommend a fish oil supplement. If their vitamin B12 levels are low, I'll recommend that. So those are some of the basic ones I start with. Then there are some others I might use. But then in terms of other medications, so if we're you know, kind of doing everything from a, a nutritional lifestyle standpoint, and I still feel like they're very, you know, they're, they're very insulin resistant, there is a medication called metformin which is, it's basically a, a very, it's been around for many decades. It's a medication for type 2 diabetes, but it's used off-label for PCOS. It's an insulin sensitizer, and it helps your body uh, kind of make less glucose, and it helps your body get the glucose into the cell better so you can make less insulin. So that's a common medication. Um, I don't think every woman with PCOS needs to be on it, but to me, that may be the most harmless one out of all the medications just because it's been around for so many years. The one problem with metformin is that um, there can be some strong gastrointestinal effects like diarrhea, bloating, gas, that whole thing. So if you do go on metformin, you need to start very slow with like one pill and then work your way up. You need, usually need to be on at least 1,500 milligrams for it to be therapeutic. So, so that's the one a lot of my clients are on. But hey, if you go on, and you have horrible side effects, stop, you know, don't feel like you have to ruin your life. And some women suck it up and they stay on, they stay on because the doctor said you'll get used to it and they stay on and their, their lives are miserable. Get off it. You don't need to be on it. They've done some studies where inositol is, it works as well as metformin and you can be on both at the same time. So that's a common one I see women on. Um, another common one, well, not that common, but kind of, I guess, is spironolactone. That's the one I mentioned before. That's yep. the diuretic that's kind of used off-label for PCOS. Uh, and that can help some women with like the skin or the hair conditions, uh, especially the hair growth or acne. Uh, oftentimes, they recommend if you go on that, that you also go on the pill because you do not want to get pregnant if you're on spironolactone because it can cause birth defects in a male fetus. So you got to be super careful with birth control if you take spironolactone. Okay. Um, so those are the two co most common ones. And then, of course, a birth control pill, which I already talked about. Okay. Now, one thing that's interesting, and I just wanted to share this with uh, the audience so that they know, I went to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine conference last year, and I sat in one of the uh, PCOS sessions. They had two experts, and one of them was actually at the PCOS clinic at UCSF. And they were talking about metformin and myonositol. And this is, again, like no necessarily, you don't necessarily need to comment on it if, if you don't want to, but um, I at least wanted to share the, the words. They also said um, that if people can't tolerate metformin to go on myonositol. And what was interesting, like I'm listening to them and I'm like, then why do we even go on metformin if you already know that it can be recommended? You know, and I'm not at all saying, okay, everyone stop your metformin, but it was just a really interesting to hear professionals who specialize in PCOS making the comment of, oh yeah, you know, if the women aren't tolerating the metformin, we just put them on the myonositol. So I'll comment. I'll just, I'll feel, comment. Feel, feel free, please, please do. <laughs> and I even read the international guidelines, the ones that came out in 2018, and they did, you know, to their credit, they did mention inositol, which they had not done before. And they said kind of one study showed it worked and one study said it didn't. But there's a lot of studies. If you go into PubMed, there's a ton of studies that show that it can really help. I mean, I would immediately put them on inositol, myo-inositol, yeah. or a combination myo to D-chiro. Immediately, I would, there's no downside. Like, I don't think I've heard of anybody having a problem with that. Do that first. And then, yeah. you know, you can always add metformin after. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And so let me ask you this. I've heard inositol and myo-inositol. Is it are they interchangeable? Is there a difference? Just so everyone is clear when they hear the different terms being well, referred inositol to. Inositol is more of the generic name. It, it, okay. There are different kinds of inositol. The two ones that play the biggest role in PCOS would be myo-inositol, and there's another one called dechiro-inositol. Got it. Um, myo-inositol is the most common one. Some studies have suggested a combination of myo to D-chiro in a 40 to 1 ratio has the best effect in the body because it mimics the way our, our, our body is naturally. So I either tell people to get that 40 to 1 combination myo to D-chiro or just the myo inositol. But you don't want to take just straight D-chiro. So it's either it. myo or the combination. Got it. Okay. Thank you. I'm glad I asked the question because I have seen both, but I've never heard of um, the statement that you had made. So hopefully that helps uh, other folks be in the know. So there's um, all these great things you can do with diet and some of these supplements. And then there are women who just try it all and and nothing works. Like, do you see those cases? And and I assume they're rare, but just to set reality, does it happen sometimes where it's just sometimes really, really hard? And what would you say to those women? Yeah, I think it's true. I think it's, it can be really hard. And the majority of women get a lot of improvement with diet and lifestyle. Uh, some women can almost take their symptoms away totally. Now, PCOS does not go away totally. It's there, but you almost wouldn't know you have it because you feel so good. Right. Some women might feel 50% better. Like I like to look at all different kind of measurements of how you're feeling. I like to look at, you know, your are you sleeping better? Do you have more energy? Do you feel better overall? I don't just look at weight or just look at, I guess, periods. But if that's your goal, yes, of course, we have to look at that. Yeah, there are some women who just can't do things naturally and they would need medication or they just have trouble ovulating so they would need to get some assistance with reproduction from a reproductive endocrinologist. The thing that sometimes can be the most difficult are some of the symptoms of like hair loss. Like that can be, in my opinion, one of the more difficult ones to treat. And I'm not saying it can't be treated, but it can be more difficult to treat where acne sometimes can improve more easily by maybe cutting out dairy and being on like a really healthy diet. Uh, that one tends to clear up better, but sometimes the hair loss one is more difficult. And unfortunately, they're just, there's not like great, there's no great techniques out there, you know, that really help get into the root cause of your PCOS, like if it is insulin resistance or if it is inflammation, really working with that can help because that can kind of help lower the androgens and then you can hopefully lower the conversion to the really active form of the DHT, which can help there. But yeah, in some cases, you know, medications are definitely needed. Um, And then another area that for some women can be really tricky, and I know we talked about this earlier, is um, the whole weight issue. And, And the majority of my clients are able to lose weight. I don't like to start talking about weight and the scale and all that, but ultimately a lot of women do want to lose weight. And I just try different tactics. Like we start with the basics. We start with like the healthy diet. Then I look at portion sizes. Then I look at meal timing, trying to eat more of your calories earlier on in the day versus later to be with the circadian rhythms. I might experiment with a lower carb diet sometimes and, and more, a little more fat. So it would involve some experimentation and it's a process. And let's just say, I mean, and you don't have to lose weight to be healthy. You can be overweight and just eat healthy and you can get your labs in a, in a good range and you can be healthy. You don't have to be in a perfect BMI 
So I, I would encourage somebody to think about that. But if they still really want to lose weight, then you have to take the next step. You know, okay. um, should you see a physician to talk about you know weight loss medication? Again, this is not what I'm recommending. Yeah. But if somebody wants to take it a step further, a step further, like that's your next step. There are some injectable medications that that are kind of used off label that may help with weight loss. There are some weight loss medications. Then as a last resort, there's, you know, surgery. Again, I'm not recommending it, yep. but it's out there. I hear you. And I think, you know, to echo here, it's all about feeling good. All It's all about feeling good. So at the end of the day, you know, we want the women to feel good. We want them to have the right resource. And I think you've given so much helpful guidance. What would you leave as parting thoughts for women who are on this journey? And what is your greatest hope for the PCOS world? My greatest hope is that we continue to learn more about it. The PCOS Challenge is doing fantastic work. We go advocating. We go to uh, to Capitol Hill every like March. Uh, they've gotten all these bills passed. We rang in the closing bell um, at the stock market last year. And this is all due to them and other advocacy organizations. So they're getting it out there. And they've declared September uh, like National PCOS Awareness Month. So we need to get, we need to let more people know about it. We need to get more funding for research, for awareness. We need to teach more physicians about it. So I think a lot of this is at a higher level, just letting people know about it. And then for women themselves, it's, I mean, we know a lot more than we did when I first got involved 20 years ago. I think it's finding a good support system, finding some helpful people online and coaches that you can follow that give you good information and support. And, and really try to find a doctor who will listen to you. It might take you going through a couple of different doctors, and, but you can probably find somebody and somebody who will work with you, maybe find an integrative physician or a naturopath. Sometimes that can be helpful too, to take a different approach, but get a, get a good support system, tell your friends, people close to you. Um, and just, you, you can make a lot of changes in this on your own through diet and lifestyle and uh, just feel like you want to, you know, you can take control of it. Awesome. And I would say, I bet the PCOS community just really appreciates that your curiosity from just over 20 years ago really led you to this space and you've made such a difference and have such an incredible following. And I think that says a lot for not only the need, but also the great work that, that you do. And thank you for sharing your wisdom and just helping women understand there isn't shame involved and we shouldn't be pressuring ourselves, but there are solutions. And at the end of the day, it's about feeling good. Uh, so thank you for providing such helpful tips uh, for women to better understand that. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. 